This podcast is offered to you by Zen Center North Shore on the web at www.zencenternorthshore.org. This program is made possible by donations from listeners like you. feeling right now maybe you do too that we are all in this together <laughs> so it's the zoom sphere um just now for service just appreciating so much this is our realm <clears throat> zoom we don't have to be at the mercy the technological mercy here of zoom but it is definitely an opportunity to meet something and to uh not cling to something so we made the call <clears throat> and you know the the phrase benefit of the doubt is coming up too um i was after doing that final bow i was down there going kate hello kate <laughs> and it was only because something was happening with emily being unmuted and kate being unmuted that we weren't able to hear kate for a while and so then I snuck in with the mute button muting Emily and then there's Kate and then just hoping that Emily would be okay with that. <laughs> so so many opportunities here of trusting a deeper offering you know than maybe what we would have in a physical space um right in the midst of all the technological issues you know what is a perfect offering a perfect ceremony um and you know i was also thinking that i've had moments where when i'm leading the chanting and you know like the um refuges or something and my voice will break <laughs> and i think oh maybe they'll just think that was a technical glitch with it was zoom blame it on zoom <laughs> so it's just so interesting and even now as i'm giving this talk or starting this talk um who knows maybe my volume will come in and out maybe the internet connection just generally speaking is unstable today and maybe you'll only get like every fourth word or something and i was thinking about um some of the talks i've heard suzuki roshi give were <laughs> it's funny people describe being in the buddha hall listening to him and not knowing what he was talking about in his his you know very limited english but i what i'm feeling this morning um is how we receive whatever's going on with a spirit of sincerity and you know a a kind of deep willingness to just be here with each other and open to something and then see what happens so <laughs> these are all the things i'm thinking about um what i wanted to to share and i'm i'm sure this is related somehow um 
I'm thinking about the question that was asked a couple weeks ago in a precept study group, and it's a very good question. In Zazen, on the cushion, what do I do with my mind? And I'm going to go to Suzuki Roshi in a minute, his talk on Zen waves, which is a wonderful response to this question. What do I do with my mind on the cushion? And then I'd like to expand from that, extend from that, from the cushion into our life. One response to this question, what do I do with my mind, can be... um, connected with this question of, well, what are we doing? What is this practice we're engaged in? And I've had a week of a lot of different contact with different, within different conversations, being asked to speak from a Buddhist perspective, from this perspective of Zen Center North Shore, around a whole range of issues. It's been a really interesting week. Um, a panel on um, the culture of incarceration, Um, a class at BU at Boston University on the connection between Buddhist practice, Buddhist understanding, and um, activism. Um, And then... um, I've been really challenged in recent weeks by the multi-faith groups that Zen Center is involved with, that we are involved with, but we're the only Buddhist in these groups. And they are basically Christian Jewish groups with a Buddhist in there. And some of the, um, the feelings that I'm starting to have around that and how I'm starting to talk about this And so the question there is, how do I, how do we as Buddhists uphold something specific, like these specific practices that we just did, this bowing and this chanting of these specific texts? How do we maintain these traditions? How do we uphold the specificity of this way without falling into dogma? or fundamentalism. So again, this is related for me. I'd like to relate it this morning back to this question. What do I do with my mind on the cushion? Okay, so here goes. This is Suzuki Roshi's response to that question, mind waves. Um, Let's see. He says, when we are practicing Zazen, we do not try to stop our thinking. Let it stop by itself. That's the basic response. But then he goes on to say, if something comes into your mind, let it come in and let it go out. It will not stay long. When you try to stop your thinking, it means you are bothered by it. Do not be bothered by anything. It appears as if something comes from outside your mind, but actually it is only the waves of your mind. And if you are not bothered by the waves, gradually they will become calmer and calmer. And I've always loved this next sentence. 
In five or at most 10 minutes, your mind will be completely serene and calm. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> or maybe it is true, but it wasn't what you were expecting serenity and calm to be. <laughs> at any rate, he continues on. At that time, your breathing will become quite slow while your pulse will become a little faster. It's interesting because then he goes on to say, it will take quite a long time before you find your calm. It will take quite a long time before you find your calm, serene mind in your practice, your calm, serene mind in your practice. Many sensations come, many thoughts or images arise, but they are just waves of your own mind. Nothing comes from outside your mind. Usually we think of our mind as receiving impressions and experiences from outside, but that is not a true understanding of our mind. The true understanding is that the mind includes everything. When you think something comes from outside, it means only that something appears in your mind. Nothing outside yourself can cause any trouble. You yourself make the waves in your mind. If you leave your mind as it is, it will become calm. This mind is called big mind. And then he says toward the end, the activity of big mind is to amplify itself through various experiences. In one sense, our experiences coming one by one are always fresh and new. But in another sense, they are nothing but a continuous or repeated unfolding of the one big mind. For instance, if you have something good for breakfast, you'll say, this is good. Good is supplied as something experienced sometime long ago, even though you may not remember when. With big mind, we accept each of our experiences as if recognizing the face we see in a mirror as our own. For us, there is no fear of losing this mind. There's nowhere to come or go. There's no fear of death, no suffering from old age or sickness. Because we enjoy all aspects of life as an unfolding of big mind, we do not care for any excessive joy. So we have imperturbable composure and it is with this imperturbable composure of big mind that we practice sasan. This big mind. As if recognizing the face we see in a mirror as our own. Not something outside of us. Maybe, you know, not even something, not even something that belongs to anyone in particular. This is not Buddhism. This teaching, this understanding doesn't belong to Buddhists. There's this open spaciousness in this way of seeing things that I think is very attractive to human beings. It's very compassionate, it's very receptive. This is not about controlling. So 
you know, this answer, what do I do with my mind? And one way someone said, you know, nothing, I don't do anything with my mind. Well, that is something, that is a choice of showing up, sitting down, and then opening and receiving, opening, receiving, opening and receiving. But in order to do this, in order to appreciate this big mind, um, in order to appreciate our life, our own body, mind, expressing, unfolding life, we have to do something. And it's helpful to do something over and over again. I think about this. Some of you are sitting every day and with great regularity. You're kind of, it's not that you're on the fast track. You're just on kind of the easy track. <laughs> it's a lot easier to get feedback from that, to feel your, something happening, to feel yourself settling. I wonder how it is with people. And it's a beautiful thing to sit zazen at any given time or to just sit and be quiet. I'm going to be all over the place this morning because there's so what's happening in my mind right now. There's so much that's been happening that I want to share with you. I had this hour long conversation yesterday with Father Frank. He's an 85 year old Roman Catholic priest retired from Lynn. And um, Father Frank Clorty, he's an Irish Catholic priest, <laughs> 85 years old. And when I was having my moment in the multi-faith clergy meeting with Echo of, wait a minute, you know, um, do you even want to have a Buddhist here? Are you even interested? Do you even know <laughs> um, the practice, the, the religion of Buddhism? Do you care? Um, Father Frank was the one, surprisingly, who said, Joan, that's a really good question, and we've been needing to ask this question for a long time. Are we really interested in multi-faith work? Because if we are, it's going to change us. So he and I had this long conversation yesterday, and one of the things that he wanted to talk about is mysticism. He's, you know, Christian mysticism, and he's been talking with a Muslim around um, the mysticism in Islam. And I said to him, well, you know, Frank, he doesn't want me calling him Father Frank, because then he said he'd have to call me Mother Joan. <laughs> so, Frank, um, you know, I feel like you're going to ask me about Buddhist mysticism. And I'm realizing we don't really use that phrase, at least in my experience and my training as a Soto Zen practitioner and priest. And I said to him, when you say mysticism, do you mean the inner experience of spirituality, of religious life? And he said, yes. And I said, oh, <laughs> the reason we don't call it that is we're doing it all the time. That is our activity as Zen Buddhists. Zazen. All the time we're doing this, but we don't, uh, do you call yourself um, Buddhist mystics? <laughs> you know, maybe you do. Um, so this is another example of true multi-faith activity is fabulous. It's so illuminating of our own particular traditions. 
we learn I learn something about what I'm doing by being in dialogue in true religious spiritual dialogue with a Christian with a Catholic priest So what's interesting, too, when we start to talk about, um, you know, because one of the problems I've had with a multi-faith group is the God language and prayer. And this keeps coming up. And it's not that there isn't that um, in our practice. We just don't call it God or prayer necessarily. But there's also something else here. And Father Frank actually mentioned this. He said, he said, because one of the other things that's happening with these multi-faith groups, I started to sense, you guys may be completely satisfied with being in an ecumenical group because there is enough thrashing going on among Christians and your different points of view, that having a Buddhist thrown into the mix just throws a big wrench. In the, that's a whole other ballgame. So maybe you have enough work to do just by being with each other, you know, in this dialogue of your difference. But Father Frank, or Frank, said to me yesterday, well, one of the, the limitations that he feels in Christianity is a bifurcation of the body from spirit. And it was actually really funny. I have to share with you around these technical glitches. In this Zoom call with the Multi-Faith Coalition, um, there were maybe 20 of us on the call, and the person who was facilitating was asking us all to share something. And then there was one person on the screen who only had a phone number, And the facilitator said, you know, whoever you are, 978-921, would you like to share? And then forth came the booming voice of Father Frank Cloherty. (laughs) He said, I'm having problems with Zoom with my camera. So I'm going to be like, you know, you're only going to hear my, you're only going to hear me. You're not going to be able to see me. It's kind of like the Holy Ghost. (laughs) So Um, I I was already, I've noticed Father Frank in the past that there's something there that I want to connect with. But with that, I just, it loosened everything. It loosened me up. Um, And so this kind of spirit of Father Frank, I I really want to engage with. And so when he said this about this bifurcation that there's between spirit and body, I said, oh, you mean like, if you want to know the undying person in the hut, don't separate from the skin bag here and now. Yeah. Yeah. That's sure to many of you who were in the the class in Tigan's talk on on Thursday night. So this led me back to the Sandokai, the harmony of difference and equality. What Shirto is talking about in the Song of the Grass Hut is another expression of the harmony of difference and equality. And both, both of these texts end with I feel an expression of 
the merging of these two truths, the, what we might say, the unity of the absolute or God and the multiplicity of messy humanity, of our bodies with all our expression and all our karmic experience of past, present, and future. How we express, um, I would say God, how we express, how we um, embody the divine. So again, at the end of the um, Song of the Grassroof Hut, if you want to know the undying person in the hut, don't separate from your particular messy experience expressed through your skin bag right now. Don't wait for heaven in the afterlife. Don't wait for your future prediction of Buddhahood from Gautama right now. Um, and in the Sandokai, the harmony of difference and equality, it's if you are confused, mountains and rivers block your way. I respectfully urge you who study the mystery, do not pass your days and nights in vain. Um, and it's very explicit. All that comes before that in the Sandokai, the harmony of difference and equality, is Shirtu's actually his um, manifesto of the thrashing that was happening in his time around um, difference in religious or spiritual inquiry. What is this that we're studying? And Shohaku and Living by Vow in the study of the harmony of difference and equality, which I'm looking forward to studying more thoroughly, um, he's this, it's this manifesto of uh, some of the schools in his time were focusing more on um, who was doing a better job at getting to the heart of the matter around unity or God or the absolute. Some were bypassing the multiplicity, the diversity of human experience you know, elevating one side or the other. And the way this was being expressed is in terms of the practice of zazen is you don't really need to practice. You know, it's all just happening. And other schools were focusing on, no, you need to practice. We need to polish the mirror because otherwise dust will keep accumulating. So here's the story that Shohaku tells. It's um, Shirtu's grandfather was um, Daikon Eno, the, the sixth ancestor, who was an illiterate woodcarver. His first awakening was as like a five or six year old um, when he was walking through the marketplace and he heard someone chanting the Heart Sutra or maybe it was the Diamond Sutra, and something connected with him, something opened. He felt so, something, a particular seed was watered. 
his mind opened. And then fast forward, he ended up in the fifth ancestor's uh, monastery and um, the fifth ancestor was looking around for someone to succeed him. Everybody thought it would be the head student, um, Shen Shu, because he was the oldest practitioner at the time. You know, he was in a leadership role. And Shen Shu, to express his understanding, um, the sixth ancestor asked everybody to write a poem. And so this was the head student's poem. The body is the Bodhi tree. The mind is like a bright mirror stand. At all times, we must strive to polish it and must not let dust collect. What do you think of that? The body is the Bodhi tree. The mind is like a bright mirror stand. At all times, we must strive to polish it and must not let dust collect. Better get busy with zazen. Better not miss a period of zazen because Buddha's watching. <laughs> um, if you get kind of exhausted, like thinking about that, like zazen is another thing to add to your to-do list, I'm with you. And I don't think that's the spirit of our way. My body starts to tight. My brow starts to furrow. My shoulders start to hunch. But this is how some people approach religious practice and the practice of meditation, that there is something to get. And unless I do it, I'm not going to get it. It's a, this is a fine line because it is not like, um, I'm remembering when I was dancing, all those years of technical training, and then some kid came along, this young, beautiful man. His name was Trajal. Trajal. This is from like 25 years ago. Just out of nowhere, this kid shows up and he does this dance. He just performs with no training. <laughs> he, does, he, he participates in this shared evening of, of choreography and he blows us all away. <laughs> so what is all that training for? But then he disappeared. Where did he go? You know, and I think about this with one of the problems that I had with a multi-faith group or that I have because it's, I'm, still, I'm still in this because I think this is right where multi-faith work begins. I noticed in the last several meetings, and forgive me if you've heard, some of you have heard this, I'm going on and on about it because I'm studying it. I want to stay right with this. Um, one of the Christian ministers when they were sharing about how they deal with the chaos of the times, they say, well, you know, I just take, I take a lot of comfort. I'm reading this book called uh, by this author called Pema Chodron, and I'm just finding it really helpful. And I'm like, mm, do you realize it's okay for Christians to be reading Buddhist books, but it would be really nice to acknowledge that that comes from a particular faith tradition that's represented by someone at this table. And then a couple of weeks later, someone else said, another Christian minister said, well, I'm finding great relief. I have this meditation app. <laughs> and something arose in me. It's should I say anything? Because it's not that I believe that Buddhists own meditation by any means. 
But again, it would be nice for some acknowledgement. And I actually did say, you know, I just want you to know how that lands on me as a person who is a, a Zen teacher and what that means, a Zen priest. What a Zen priest does is teach meditation. That's what I'm dedicating my life to. So I just want to ask you how you think that might feel to just say that you're, you're, you're on a meditation app. It's not that it's a problem. That's wonderful and helpful for so many people. But what, how would you feel if I got a Jesus app and I decided to bypass all the Christian priests here and just, you know, be with my own Jesus on my own time when I feel like it? How would that feel to you? But this is slippery and I haven't said anything necessarily over the years because, you know, even though I'm going to say this, even though I've actually been called this by one of my teachers, I've been called a Zen fundamentalist. (laughs) This is a confession. And we did. Thank you, Kate. We did laugh about it. Um. But in my heart, I know that what draws me to this practice is the ongoing inquiry of the Bodhisattva. It makes me want to cry. The ongoing inquiry of not knowing, the the sexy tenderness of continually showing up and opening and just being with teeming humanity. But does it mean this not knowing? Does it mean that we don't know anything? That there hasn't been any training or study? Hell no! <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm having to put my foot down, that sword, and say, you know what? It's time for me to stand up for my faith tradition. <laughs> so here's the second poem that won the contest even though the winner had to sneak out at midnight and slip away because the fifth ancestor knew that wherever humans gather, especially a monastery, there are two things, trash and politics. (laughs) So he knew that the winner of this contest, it was not going to go over well with the monks. And he knew that, that there was going to have to be another way for the sixth ancestor to take his place in the lineage. That's another story. I won't get into that, but Here's the the winning poem in this tradition of upholding something specific without falling into dogma that you, whether you know it or not, have signed up for, at least in this moment. Bodhi originally has no tree. The bright mirror also has no stand. Fundamentally, there is not a single thing. Where could dust arise? Bodhi originally has no tree. The bright mirror also has no stand. Fundamentally, there is not a single thing. Where could dust arise? Okay, it's 8.58. I'm supposed to end at 9. And I'm going to do, I have more that I want to share, but I want to just stop right there and I want to ask you. Because this is, you are not baby birds being fed. (laughs) You are Zen practitioners. Or at least you are here in a Zen practice place and even though you are being nourished hopefully there's a difference between that and being hand fed 
your nourishment is coming from your own engagement, your own inquiry, your own response to these two poems. Because the second poem has no meaning. It doesn't mean anything. It's really not saying anything on its own. The only meaning it has comes from the delusion of the poem that came before it. So I want to ask you, and I don't know what the question is, but I'm feeling like I'd just like to hear from you. Um, what's your take on this? How do you, what is the question? Is it something like, what do you think you're doing here? <laughs> what do you think you're doing here is a very good question. Do you have the stability and the composure to respond to that? I know you do, but can you access it? Anybody? This is, oh my gosh, I, I just love this stuff. <laughs> you know, one of the things that the joy of this, uh, you know, bringing us to this moment of, uh, is it eighth century, we, you know, in China? And, um, you know, I was, I was thinking, you know, the dust, some, when you were telling the first story, I was just thinking, well, it's all about the dust. You know, I've got so much dust on my screen here. And uh, <laughs> um, yeah, and it, it made me think of uh, this story and I, I don't know what this means, but I'll just share it because I have a background in Asian art and there's this wonderful uh, story of the, the mirror hall. So in the caves, you know, back in the Dunhuang kind of caves, there were, they created a little, caves that you know patrons would and you know bring lots of artists to create these beautiful caves with paintings and sculptures and everything and at, at some point somebody created a mirror hall so the idea they set up all the mirrors in such a way like a kind of a fun room that you could sit and you could look through the mirrors and see the infinite you know the infinity of all the other mirrors and um I don't know why it, that story just made me think about that because uh, it's, a, it's a text that I, um, I have my students read. It's very technical. It was actually my advisor for my master's degree. So, but I was just thinking when you told that story that there, there was a student who read that essay so and, and just got it. I mean, I don't know. It's like... Um, it's such a personal uh, response. Maybe that's what I would say. It could be anything, but the response was the correct response because there is no separation. It's like the theory of non-separation. There's no mirror and, you know, anyway, that's just what I wanted. Those are the things that popped up into my mind. I'm appreciating that, Kate, because I, I feel that what you did is instead of narrowing your mind into trying to answer a question, which I didn't really even ask, there's a feeling of expanding or relaxing your mind, which is taking your place right here. What is it for you? 
What are we doing here? You know, how are we, how are we living out our lives right now? When I look back on my life with regret, like my whole time at college, I was intimidated the whole time. I don't feel like there was a moment when I was in college where I ever just took my place and spoke from there. And, you know, again, it's okay. It's all right. That's what was happening then. But that's not what's happening now. Anybody else? Anything coming up for you? I feel like uh, practice is, um, is similar to when I do yoga. Sometimes if, there's, if I do a slight adjustment or correction from a teacher, it totally opens up uh, the pose for me where before I didn't feel like my, my, my arm was connected to my body and now I do. Practice for me has been that way where it's like um, sort of getting my vision checked. Now I can see things very clearly or um, sort of continuing to take off layers of clothes. Um, and those that imagery for me is, 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 is what I'm trying to describe, um, about practice where like right now I'm like holding my hands. I really feel my hands and I feel the cushion underneath me. And, and a lot of times I notice when I talk to cashiers, when I'm paying for something, I actually see the person. Um, whereas for mo for a long time in my life, I, I, it's like, the person was there, but not there. Like I, I just had this, there was this barrier for me. I, I, I wasn't really present in, 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 even in my own body and my own experience. It was almost like I was dissociated and observing this person live my life as opposed to I'm living my life. Um, and, and a lot of times when I feel, when I, I feel very, uh, present with the moment, it's almost like I, I want, I don't want to cry, but, but, but like, it's almost as though tears are going to come to my eyes because it's so, I feel the tenderness of, of just like this human experience. Um, and for me personally, a, a, as a person, most of you don't know me that very, that well, uh, I feel that tenderness, even when I'm talking to somebody who's really irritating me, you know, I see their face and I think, Oh, this person is just like me in that they're, they're just living their life and, and, and being open to seeing them as a person helps me just see myself as a person. Um, and there is for me, I, a lot, a lot of this is about being flexible with myself. Um, And in that open o opening, I I really I I'm able to just be present to whatever comes up, as opposed to not seeing what is being offered 
for example, and kind of like missed opportunity, you know, to, and the missed opportunity is, 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 is missing this moment of connecting with my life every second of it and not letting any second pass me by unaware. That, that was it. That's all. Thank you, Vicki, for being so generous. And Wendy, just before we get to you, it occurs to me, I just want to ask, um, and maybe you can tell me now or later, you can do the thumbs up. We are recording this. And I really do feel, and it does go on to the, the, our website and we have like a, you know, whole audio Dharma thing. I, I, truthfully, I don't really know where it goes, but people can access it. And one of the great values of our practice, and I feel the Dharma at this practice place is that it is intimate and personal because that's where it is. That's where the energy is. That's where the meaning is. Um, And having said that, um, without because I, I asked to hear from you and you are speaking. I need to ask your permission. If there's anything, if there's the, the, this part of it that you don't want to go on our audio Dharma, we will edit that out. Right, Emily, we can do that with Jake. So um, I need to name that. And so just let me know. Okay. But as you're letting me know, consider this. <laughs> um, you are expressing Dharma. You are expressing your dharma. You are expressing your practice. And maybe it's an offering to the world. So maybe you would consider that as you weigh in, whether you'll say yes or no. And either way is okay. All right, Wendy. (laughs) Now that I've said that, go for it, Wendy. Spill your guts. You can record me saying this. This audio dharma can go forth. Um, um, I have a, um, I'll just contribute this. I have a, um, um, memory issues. I'm just not too serious, but I just know that's part of what I'm working with. And, um, so when a question is asked at 8:58, am I still going to remember it at nine Oh, whatever this is. Um, but I, I will, I know this, uh, this idea came in mind when, when I knew I was going to be asked to say something is that um, despite my memory issues, or maybe because of them, I really try to um, remember, be a little bit conscious about how how I'm tracking through time with a bunch of things, and, and especially practice. And one thing I know for sure is that um, a year ago, hearing what you just said, Joan, I would have understood hardly any of it. I would have resonated with it. And so if you would ask the question, I would have said, oh, I resonate with this because there's been something all along that I've been able to get. But um, after the practice that I've done for a while in this weird year, I, I get a lot of it. So that's my contribution. I mean, I, and I think that answers your question too. What, what, what's going on here? I'm not, I'm not trying to, I mean, I am trying to know more. I am all the time. And maybe that's a gaining idea that I should rid myself of, but whatever, I like it. And I'm, I'm understanding more because I'm sitting a lot. I know it's because I'm sitting a lot. So with you, with all of you, with all of you, Thanks.
um, Wendy and Vicky, I think what you said resonates with me a lot. Um, and I was thinking um, about my, I've been thinking a lot about my hearing uh, this past, you know, 10 days, especially I've been thinking about it for months, but I've been thinking about it for the past, you know, 10 days or so, especially because I've been getting used to hearing aids. Um, actually, technically, it's really only one actual hearing aid. And then on the other side is a microphone because the ear canal on this side is sewn shut, right? So it's closed, but the nerves all still work. So it's been interesting. And I had this real flash yesterday when I was walking about the heart sutra and relating this part that is the bad ear and the microphone and just realizing how much I was doing to, um, I was feeling the sensations, formations, perceptions, consciousness, you know, really feeling the way, um, you know, raw data comes in and then we make this picture of sound, right? Like sound isn't just the raw stuff and the, and then there's judgments and there's feelings and there's all these things that happen with that. Um, and I was feeling that when I was sitting really slowly, but I kind of like had the flash of the actual words of the heart sutra yesterday when I was walking kind of really folding all that together. And I went, yeah, it's just really interesting how these things happen with steady sitting with steady chanting that, you know, you're kind of working with something and then all of a sudden it, there's, there's a way of understanding that is really full bodied and really, um, really powerful, just so powerful. Um, and yeah, I think some of what I'm doing here is trying to slow that down. You know, I really value trying to understand the process that's happening here, not just here, but everywhere else in the body. I really do. I think that's what I'm really fascinated by and really want to explore. Like it's never going to stop, which is daunting. And, you know, it is, it's, it's, it is intimidating to use your word, Joan, but it's really powerful. So I think with that word intimidation, um, there, you know, in, in my mind right now, there are two kinds of intimidation. Like there are two kinds of doubt. Um, the intimidation that causes you to never walk through the door of a Zen center or to never speak in your college classes, to never, you know, ask a question or answer a question, respond to a question, that kind of intimidation that's flattening. Um, and then there's the kind of intimidation, which is really just respect. <laughs> that's, um, oh, this is big, the mystery, you know. What does he say again in the, the Sandokai? Um, what is it, the mystery? Anyway. The mystery, opening to the mystery, taking your place within the mystery with humility, you know, with, with a sincere heart. Um, that is like respect that I, I think is, is actually a door opener as, a, as opposed to a door, not slamming shut, but just never opening. 
So Vicki, and I appreciate so much your inquiry. You're taking up the, the opportunity without getting too, you know, too much into spiritual bypass of the change in your body, in your, your ear, the loss of hearing in one ear. Um, but this is what's happening and taking that up and working with that, seeing something, <laughs> seeing something, staying with something. Um, I think this is really it. This is our practice, working with what's right here. I always come back to this. The um, Actually, it appears in the Sandokai, mon, mon. Mon mon isai no kyo, this mon mon mon, the um, character mon means both gar- uh, barrier and gate. That that what's blocking us is also potentially a gate for us to walk through, to see something, to experience something real, not theoretical. You know, not something we read about, you know, that sounds great, but something actually lived, actually experienced. And that's what that's what's going on with you, uh, Emily, right now. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. Any? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I can share a little bit. Um in relation to what you were talking about initially with these two perspectives, one of having to make effort. Can everyone hear me okay? Yeah, okay, good. The one perspective of having to make an effort to attain a result and this other perspective that originally there's no result to attain. And my mind has a tendency to sort of fall into one of those two extremes and and reify it, that on the one hand, I'm going to do this and get a particular result, and that creates a certain kind of misery. And then I'll vacillate, I'll get tired of that and vacillate over to, I'll just live my everyday life. I don't need to, I need to sit. I don't need to do anything particularly. And then I just end up falling into the ruts of um, reifying my habits, basically. and that's another kind of misery. And um, so for me, there's a tendency to sort of vacillate back and forth between these two. And um, so I think what I'm finding where I'm at right now is a recognition that it, it, it's the reification that can be problematic, that it's not about, it's not about not making an effort um, it's making an effort without an expectation of a particular result and making an effort without a, an expectation of a particular effort that whatever I can bring right now is, is the perfect effort or wholehearted effort. And then whatever the result is, if I can accept that, then that's the perfect result. And, um, that's really hard to do. And usually, um, I fumble and drop the ball, but in a sense, that's also perfect effort and perfect result. Like it's finding a foothold in a place where there's no foothold kind of thing. Like there's no place to stand really with this, except for just 
right now just doing this wholeheartedly and whether you do it wholeheartedly or half-heartedly that's what you've got right now and accepting the effort and just continuing that endlessly um, so that's what comes to mind about this topic so Troy I hope that means that we'll see more of you then Sitting yeah um, and every day you get to pras- practice this seeing the ungraspability of things and practicing anyway yeah I've been needing sangha for a long time I started um sitting up at Valley Zendo right when the pandemic hit. And Asian San's not doing anything online. So, um, And I've known about Zen Center North Shore for some years, but it's always been like, you know, for me, the thing is it's an hour and a half drive to get there kind of thing. And it's like, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whatever. Anyways, online has definitely been the catalyst for getting me involved. So... Yeah. I really appreciate this. I know I don't have control over it, but I hope it continues after pandemic so I can access Dharma talks and things like that without having to, you know, spend three or four hours in a car and committing, you know, half a day or more. So, so that's that's my nuts and bolts take on the whole Zoom thing. It is awkward and weird, for sure. Um, yeah. But I'm really... and it's different than in person and part of me thinks it's not as good, you know, it's not as personable or personal or I don't know what it is. There's something very different, but I'm appreciating it. And I'm appreciating uh, being able to connect to teachings and sanghas that I didn't have access to before. So thanks for offering this. Troy, everything's on our podcast, so you can check it out on Apple and Spotify, so it all goes up there. Thank you, Emily. So, yes, this point, this is a really important point, that just because there's nothing to attain does not invalidate effort. Just because there's nothing to attain doesn't mean there's no need for effort. So, this is the Bodhisattva vow. You know, beings are numberless, but I still vow to save them. Or there's nothing to attain, but I still vow to show up. Because immigrants detained need us to do that. Or people who are hungry and don't have a place to live need us to do that. And they need us to do it, I think, in a way that is sustainable for us trying to help and is also um connecting a feeling of solidarity that we are all in it together as opposed to someone helping someone else someone helping someone else we don't the world does not need any more othering any more dividing up into categories so this is what in some ways we can say this is what we do every time we show up and we sit down as we practice um You know, being in contact, seeing the ungraspability of things and not, um, you know, I mean, becoming complacent. Like this is the thing about the, our practice of stillness. I think sometimes when we talk about stillness, it's problematic because 
we can fall into a kind of stagnation, both in body and mind. And Vicki, I appreciate you talking about the practice of yoga. You know, just like these two poems, to, in order to appreciate true stillness and for it not to be stagnation, we better move. That's why we have Kenyan, you know, and that's why we do Qigong and, and you know, have dance as a practice, moving. This is not about, you know, not moving, but also uh, kind of psychically or emotionally, mentally, the complacency that I can, is the near enemy of this stillness. Um, it is all good. <laughs> it is all good. You know, it is what it is. Yeah. But do we see how um, in order for that to be enacted with compassion and wisdom, that requires a lot of effort. There are no shortcuts. But, you know, having said all that, and when the multi-faith commission, the multi-faith committees, the, the groups, I know that it all comes out in the wash. It's really no problem because you do get what you give, I think. I think if I live in a realm, like someone who is sincerely wanting to practice will see an app as just a Dharma gate and an important Dharma gate. But eventually, just like Troy expressed, you're going to want people. It's a natural next step if you're staying with it. And if you're not, that's okay too. Mm. I'm going to end with one of my favorite stories about this, this expression of the Bodhisattva vow and how our, all this hard work is not meant to make us busier and more stressed out. All this hard work is actually uh, freeing and comforting and stabilizing. And so Ron, I was thinking about him while I was on this panel, this panel about incarceration and how the biggest enemy um, for us to combat is this enemy of how, and I feel like where Buddhists and, and people who are practicing religion or, or spirituality really have this great offering of preserving, protecting, upholding humanity because there are so many ways that we're dehumanized. And one of them certainly is in the carceral system of people who are incarcerated as somehow less than human and relegated to a sphere of, you know, of, pity or inferiority. So there's a story, this, this experience I had with Ron, who was in a maximum security prison and probably still is, will probably spend the rest of his days there, um, of his saying to me at one point, first of all, he joked that all he asked for was a Buddhist book and he didn't count on getting a Buddhist priest. <laughs> a human showed up <laughs> and that was really great at first, but then eventually he was like, oh, <laughs> this is hard. She's giving me feedback. My bubble is bursting. I had all these ideas about what enlightenment was and what this practice was and what I was supposed to be feeling. And now that it's getting real, I'm realizing, he said, Joan, I didn't realize how difficult this practice is. 
then I got really happy about that. And I said, Ron, it's not that this practice is difficult. It's that it's impossible. And he, yes, Kate, <laughs> he, and Troy, yes. <laughs> he threw his head back and laughed. And he said, I don't know why that makes me feel so good. <laughs> and it is precisely because this practice is not to make you busier, not to make you more stressed out. It's not another thing that you have to do. <laughs> but um, I hope, hopefully, you will find your own rhythm. You'll find your own settling. And you'll get that feedback loop from your practice where uh, what you're giving is what you're getting. <laughs> Just like that. We hope you enjoyed this episode. This podcast is made possible by donations from listeners like you. For more information or to donate, please go to www.zencenternorthshore.org. Thank you.